الله أكبر الله أكبر الله أكبر لا إله إلا الله الله أكبر الله أكبر ولله الحمد الله أكبر كبيرا والحمد لله كثيرا وسبحان الله بكرة وأصيلا لا إله إلا الله وحده صدق وعده ونصر عبده وأعز جنده وهزم الأحزاب وحده لا إله إلا الله ولا نعبد إلا إياه مخلصين له الدين ولو كره الكافرون اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وعلى أصحاب سيدنا محمد وعلى أنصار سيدنا محمد وعلى أزواج سيدنا محمد وعلى ذرية سيدنا محمد وسلم تسليما كثيرا Dear committed Muslims, brothers and sisters This is a day and this is an occasion which has very significant meanings and I underline the word meanings this is not a day of folklore it is not a day of showing off it is not a day of cultures and traditions this is a day of meanings regrettably many of these meanings have been lost throughout the years the generations and the centuries that have passed to understand some of these meanings we may recall some incidents that relate to our everyday life. And these incidents are in recorded history thousands of years ago when Ibrahim was instructed to go to a particular area in the world, in the whole world, there's a particular area that Ibrahim was guided to by Allah Jalla Sha'nuh. رَبِّ إِنِّي أَسْكَنْتُ مِنْ ذُرِّيَّتِي بِوَادٍ غَيْرِ ذِي زَرْعٍ عِنْدَ بَيْتِكَ الْمُحَرَّمِ رَبَّنَا لِيُقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ O my sustainer, O our sustainer, I have settled 
of my own offspring at your inviolable house our sustainer shall they have salah as their medium of life and salah here is not the simplistic ritual because the word rabbana liyuqimu salah not rabbana liyusallu rabbana liyuqimu salah salah has to be germane to our details of life salah the meaning of salah what we recite in our salah have to become the values and the norms and the principles and the standards of life itself rabbana liyuqimu salah but there's a distance between understanding rabbana liyuqimu salah and the actualization of iqamat as-salah when a salah itself becomes palpable not only in the mihrab and in the masjid but in community and in society in con- countries and in continents now let us visit some of the details of ibrahim when he went to this desolate area of the arabian desert he went with his wife hajar and his newborn son his only son ismail after a lifetime of being a foreigner and a stranger and an alien Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Ibrahim's old age gave him his only son. And then he wanted to leave them there. His wife asked him, is this something you are doing on your own? Or is this something that Allah instructed you to do? He said, it is something that Allah told me to do. This is a very difficult thing to do for an elderly patriarch to leave his wife and his only son in a place where there is no livelihood. There is no agriculture, there is no commerce, nothing. Rabbi inni askantu min dhurriyati biwadin ghayri dhi zar'in inda baytika al-muharram. In a valley that has no produce, it has no agriculture, it has no plants, it has nothing. When Hajar heard that these are 
directives from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, she settled down. She felt secure. And Ibrahim left them there. Notice that we as human beings, when we grow up, in, our, in the prime of our life, we are number one. We care for our families, we care for those we belong to, but we are number one. When we get older, when we grow into old age, then our offspring becomes number one. At the beginning of life, we are number one, and the others, even our family, are secondary. As we advance into life and enter into old age as Ibrahim was, then his family becomes number one, and he is secondary. So it was very difficult for Ibrahim on instructions from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to leave his wife and his only son in an isolated place in the geography of the world. It was difficult for him to do that, but he did it. And then after a while, after years, or whatever the case may have been, he returns to his family. Now his son Ismail had grown up. And Ibrahim told him, and this is another test from Allah, Ibtila' Inni ara fil manami anni adbahuk. Fanvur madha tara. Ibrahim, the mature, Messenger and Prophet of Allah says to his son, I see in my dream that I am sacrificing you. Imagine this. Think about it. This, these ayat are meant for us to think. A father and ru'ya al-anbiya haq. Prophets, when they see dreams, those dreams are valid. There is no illusions in these dreams. There are, there's no way a shaitan can enter these dreams. These are dreams meant to be the truth. So when Ibrahim saw this, he knew this was, and this wasn't wahi. He knew that Allah is commanding him to do something that's going to be very difficult for him to do. How do you sacrifice? Inni ara fil manami anni adbahuk. The word dhabaha literally means slaughter. Not another method. He could put him in the desert and he could he could die of thirst. 
That wasn't the means. The means was الذبح. Literally, to butcher. إِنِّي أَرَى فِي الْمَنَامِ أَنِّي This is an ibtila from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's very difficult to sacrifice the most precious thing that Allah has given you throughout all of your life. Because Ismail was going to become the blood lineage of Ibrahim. And then he tells his son, Fanzur Madha Tara. Consider this and tell me what you think about it. Fanzur Madha Tara. Now, of course, we read these ayat, but because we don't give it much thought, we don't extract from it the deeper meanings. Number one. Ibrahim was a father, was the messenger and not any average messenger. He was the first from Ulil Azim Min al Rusul, from the five most outstanding and challenged and determined prophets and messengers of Allah. could have come and told his son, my son, Allah has ordered me to slaughter you and I have to obey Allah, come. I'm going to finish Allah's order. No. This is a communication between a father and his son. He told his son, فَانْظُرْ مَاذَا tara." Look into this affair. And tell me what your final thoughts are on it. Ibrahim telling his son what his thoughts are about what Allah is saying. This teaches us the courtesy of communication. Ibrahim was satisfied there's nothing in the Quran that indicates that Ibrahim was displeased with Allah. Nothing. He, Ibrahim, surrendered to the will of Allah. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to test a person, He subjects him to what is hard to accept. It was hard for Ibrahim to accept this, but he accepted it immediately. Those of us who are subjected to something that is hard to accept, the longer we refuse to accept it, the longer it's going to linger on with us. The sooner we accept Allah's will, qada Allah, the sooner we accept that, the sooner the issue subsides. This is a very hard lesson for people to learn in life. Ibrahim accepted what Allah ordered him immediately and forthwith. So he didn't suffer in this ibtila. 
But he wanted to know whether his only son is going to accept it the way he accepted it. Or whether he's going to express some objections or reservations. Because logic kicks in here. He could have said, Dad, this doesn't make sense. A father slaughtering his own son. Shouldn't we think about this? Shouldn't we ask Allah Jallat Hikmatuhu? Shouldn't we ask him for some explanation? No. Of course, that probably would have been the attitude of Bani Israel. But here we're not talking about the attitude of Bani Israel. So what did Ismail say to his father? He said, Ya Abati, Ifal ma tu'mar. Satajiduni in Allahu minasabirin. Oh my father, my dear father, Abati. Ifal ma tu'mar. Do what you are ordered by Allah to do. Satajiduni in Allahu minasabirin. You will find me by Allah's decree to be very patient so Ismail just like his father just like Allah's messengers accepted immediately what Allah ordered they both resigned to Allah's will without questions without any psychological zigzagging at that time when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala subjected them to the most challenging thing to human nature imagine what we are talking about a father and a son and the father causes the death of his own son with his own hand when both of them resigned to Allah's will Allah said وَفَدَيْنَاهُ بِذِبْحٍ عَظِيمٍ and in exchange for Ismail we substituted that with the sacrifice of an animal not of human life, of animal life. One other thing we understand from this, if we take all of the meanings of the Hajj, we're speaking about this meaning that is absent from the Hajj. And we spoke about other meanings that are absent from the Hajj. But this is one particular meaning that has to come alive in our in our personal lives and in our social lives Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has presented us with a lifetime obligation at least if we can go once to the hajj 
That's the bare minimum. In the Hajj, one of the meanings of the Hajj is survival. Ismail survived the thirst to begin with. Remember when Hajar desperately as a mother ran between As-Safa and Al-Marwa looking for something, maybe a tree, maybe a plant, maybe something that can nourish her dying baby. Ismail survived what you may call natural causes of death. Thirst, starvation is a natural cause of death and Ismail survived the natural threat. Here, when Ibrahim was ordered to sacrifice his own son, that was the threat of man. And Ismail survived the threat of men. So Ismail is a survivor. But who of us, when we go to Hajj, or when we think about Hajj, who's thinking about survival? Ibrahim found a home in Mecca when he did not have a home. That's also another aspect of survival. He didn't have a country. He didn't have a people. Allah gave him a country and a people in Mecca. That's personal survival. That is social survival. Al-Hajj is meant to communicate to the millions of people, or suppose not the measly two million people that are there now, there should be at least 20 million, if not 200 million people who can go to Hajj every year. And they are going for purposes of survival. What do you think when we look at the real world? There are threats. The real world now presents us with threats. Nationalist threats, racist threats, social threats, and threats that we bring upon ourselves when we trigger the reaction of what is called nature. When we go to Hajj, we are going to say that we are going to survive the reactions of nature and the proactions of men. We are going to survive those threats and those challenges. But Mecca doesn't mean survival, unfortunately, for those who are going there. What does it mean? It means rituals. People perform their dua or their salah or their tawaf or their sa'i and their ramyal jamarat and their wuquf at arafat and all they without meaning. These have meanings to them. The least we can do is say on this day, say and mean Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allah is more important. Allah is more significant. Allah is more emphatic than our own ignorance. We will survive our own ignorance. And the days and the years to come will prove it as long 
as we accept the will of Allah and do that will in our lives, whether we are going to the Hajj or whether we are banned from going to the Hajj or anything in between. أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم أدعوه سبحانه وأنتم على يقين بالإجابة وتوبوا إلى الله غافر الذنب وقابل التوب شديد العقاب وإليه المصير سبحان الله والحمد لله ولا إله إلا الله والله أكبر وصلى الله على محمد وآل محمد Dear brothers and sisters committed Muslims It is high time that we become responsible and Muslims of awareness. Today, the performance of the Hajj in our age, in our time, we're not speaking hundreds and thousands of years in the past, and we're not speaking about the unknown future. We are speaking about today. We should As responsible Muslims, we should circulate in our public sphere. The question, why is there? This is the official number. The number of pilgrims this year who have gone to Mecca is 2,352,122 pilgrims. That's a measly number. We should be ashamed of ourselves. Two billion, around two billion Muslims in the world and a little over only two million go to Hajj. Let me break that down a little further for you to understand what is going on. Out of that number, 2,352,122 hujjaj out of them there are 1,752,000 plus who are from outside of what is called Saudi Arabia those who perform the hajj from within Saudi Arabia are 600,108 Hajj. The population of Saudi Arabia is something like 24 million people. And between one-fourth and one-third of the total in the Hajj come from that population of 24 million. Why? Why is this discrimination taking place in the Hajj? Ibrahim came to Mecca to get rid of discrimination. And then we go to Mecca 
to look discrimination in the eye. Another news item for you to think about. 400,000 Muslims applied to go to the Hajj and were banned from going to the Hajj because, this is what they tell us, these are their words, they don't have the required official documents to proceed to the Hajj. Who says, where is it in the Quran or in the Sunnah that I need an official document to perform my wajib? Do you need an official document to say, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah, wa ashadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah? That's a rukun from Arkan al Islam. Do you need a document to pray? To go to your salah, do you need a document, official document for that? Do you need an official document to pay your zakah, your sadaqah? Do you need an official document to fast Ramadan or any other fasting? Then why should I need an official document or you need an official document or any Muslim in the world need an official document to go to the Hajj? You tell us, where did this come from? And we're still living with it year after year. We need permission to go to Allah. We need permission to go to Mecca. There's a dispute nowadays between the ruling family in what is called the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And because of that dispute, the number of Qataris that performed the Hajj this year is 1,524. The number of Qataris who were barred from going to the Hajj is 20,000. And they say, they tell us night and day, do not politicize the Hajj. Well, who's politicizing the Hajj? Tell us, you, you stood at Mount Arafat yesterday, there was a speaker at Mount Arafat, he was calling for the unity of the Muslims and to shed divisions. Okay, we agree. We are number one for the unity of the Muslims. We are foremost in shedding any division among Muslims. But here you are, you're speaking with a forked tongue. You say one thing and you do the opposite. You are the one who is fostering this disunity and these discriminatory policies among the Muslims. We go to Hajj, we all take off, off everything that indicates we may have status in life. When we wear the ihram, we are all equalized in the Hajj. But why are some policies giving, giving preference to some people and then neglecting and trashing other people? And then, they, depending on the news you go to, one news item says 100,000, 100,000 troops whether they are army or national guard or whatever, 100,000 100, of them are policing the Hajj. 
What is a hajj? A criminal act? That you need 100,000 police to police it? Another news item says 300,000. Some of them police and military and others are volunteers. 300,000. As if we are going, Muslims are going to Mecca and Al Medina to commit crimes. What is this? 300,000? And then add to all of this, they are flying drones over the Hujjaj. And they haven't mentioned this in the news, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had satellites up there trying to locate certain Muslims who are at the Hajj. And then we have this royal family claiming to be the upholder of Allah's Prophet Sunnah. Let's take a look. Let's let's open our eyes, brothers and sisters. Let's open our eyes. That king, the king in that land, went on a tour to Morocco just last month. He went on a tour to Morocco. He spent a month there. Now, I want you to listen to this because they say they are champions of Abi Bakr and Omar and Uthman and Ali. They say they are their number one followers. Okay. He goes to Morocco with an entourage of a thousand who are some of his relatives and some of his guests. And how much do you think they spend on this excursion of a month in Morocco? They spend $100 million. They occupy or they reserve 800 rooms and suites in the hotels in Morocco. 800. And they rent over 200 cars. Is this the character of Abi Bakr and Omar and Uthman and Ali? We ask them, is this their character? Is there anything in their biography or in their history that indicate that they've done something even similar to this. Where is all of this buying power coming from if it's not coming from the resources that belong to the Muslims? They are squandering it. Abu Bakr, radiallahu an, was fighting the breakaway elements who wanted to break away from the Islamic Central Authority. The rulers in Arabia are financing the breakaway elements in the Muslim world. Omar radiallahu an was seen one day when he was speaking to the Muslim public was seen with a garb that looked a little out of order. 
because he always used to wear very humble clothes. And on that occasion, he had something that looked new on him. And the Muslim public had the courage to ask him, where'd you get that from? Then he turns to one Muslim and he says to the Muslim, explain to the inquisitor where I got this from. Meaning it's something that didn't belong to him. Is this the character of those who are ruling the land of Ibrahim, the land of the prophets, the land of the Qur'an, the land of Islam? Uthman, radiallahu he gave the Muslims, the Muslim military, he gave them support when they needed it. He, in other words, he financed the military budget of Muslims during the time of the Prophet. Not speaking about his latter years. Does this coincide with what we see of those who are ruling in the Arabian Peninsula? And Al-Imam Ali. Everything, we can almost say everything that the rulers in this Arabian Peninsula are doing, the Saudi rulers, almost everything is in contradiction to what Al-Imam Ali stood for. And after all of this, they whitewash all of their crimes and they want Ismail. Mecca, Ma Zamzam, meant the survival of Ismail. As the Muslims, in much of ignorance, as they are performing their Hajj with much sincerity, as they are doing that, the Saudi war criminals. are responsible for policies that are causing the death or the potential death of hundreds of thousands of Muslims in Yemen. And by international acknowledgement, cholera is breaking out in Yemen and there's potentially tens of thousands who are affected by it. And what is cholera? Cholera is death by dehydration. Meaning they are killing Ismail in Yemen while the Muslims are performing their Hajj. This is the irony of the world that we are living in. And this is why we are victims of our own ignorance. And Allah is greater. And Allah is more important. And Allah will have the final word because He is Akbar. He is greater. He is more important than these details that we are going through. اللهم أرنا الحق حقا وارزقنا اتباعه وأرنا الباطل باطلا وارزقنا اجتنابه ولا تجعله ملتبسا علينا 
واجعلنا للمتقين إماما ربنا اجعلنا مقيم الصلاة ومن ذرياتنا ربنا تقبل دعاءنا ربنا اغفر لنا ولوالدينا وللمؤمنين يوم يقوم الحساب ربنا وسعت كل شيء رحمة وعلما فاغفر للذين تابوا واتبعوا سبيلك وقهم عذاب الجحيم ربنا وأدخلهم جنات عدن التي وعدتهم ومن صلح من آبائهم وأزواجهم وذرياتهم إنك أنت العزيز الحكيم ربنا آتنا من لدنك رحمة وهيئ لنا من أمرنا رشدا ربنا افتح بيننا وبين قومنا بالحق وأنت خير الفاتحين ربنا صل على محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إنما يعمر مساجد الله من آمن بالله واليوم الآخر وأقام الصلاة وآت الزكاة ولم يخش إلا الله فعسى أولئك أن يكونوا من المهتدين أجعلتم سقاية الحاج وعمارة المسجد الحرام كمن آمن بالله واليوم الآخر وجاهد في سبيل الله لا يستوون عند الله والله لا يهدي القوم الظالمين Brothers and sisters, even though we are living the conditions and the circumstances that we are in, be as kind, be as forthcoming, be as considerate as you can on this day towards your families towards your relatives and towards those who are in need and those who don't know better we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have our coming Eid a Eid of success as defined by Allah and His Prophet wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh wa kullu amin wa antum bi khair Aid Sa'id to you and to all.